At the Democratic National Convention this summer, I expected the standard speeches about family and the economy and unity, etc., etc. But there was one speech that felt very different from what you usually see at huge political rallies. Someone sharing their personal story about getting an abortion. That's not something you often see on primetime national TV. The four-minute speech was given by Elise Hogue, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. In front of thousands of people, Elise told her story. I wanted a family, but it was the wrong time. I made the decision that was best for me, to have an abortion and get compassionate care at a clinic in my own community. A few weeks ago, as the election was heading into its final month, Elise talked with us here at Bitch about that moment and why she decided to share her story in this political context. Um, There are millions of women who have made the decision to terminate a pregnancy, who live in fear, live in shame, um, are experiencing political rhetoric that is made that is designed to make us feel less than. Um, We're seeing policies passed based on that political rhetoric that is completely out of step with um, the real lived experience of women and families in this country. And those millions of women didn't have the stage. They didn't have the four minutes, and I did. And so um, when I sat down to think about what was the highest, best use of those four minutes, um, it seemed like sharing just sharing my story and I, I say that hesitatingly because I actually didn't feel like it was important to go into the details of my story because all of our stories are individual and can be and should be personal if we want them to be but to stand on the stage and self-identify as as one of the millions of women in this country who has made that decision and who has gone on to live a very full life Publicly sharing abortion stories on a big scale like this is one way that political rhetoric around abortion has shifted in recent years. To talk more about this shift and the way America has been talking about abortion in this presidential election, I called up Renee Bracey Sherman. Hi, I'm Renee Bracey Sherman. I'm a reproductive justice activist, and I'm the senior public affairs manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds where I run a program called We Testify, which is an abortion storyteller leadership program focused on supporting abortion storytellers who share their stories at the intersection of race, class, geography, gender identity, um, and all other identities. And I'm also a board member at NARAL Pro-Choice America. But today, everything that I'm sharing with you and all my thoughts are my personal opinions. Let's start off talking a bit about the Abortion Stories Project that you run. Can you tell me about how the idea of publicly sharing stories about abortion on a national scale came to be? So I've been sharing my abortion story for, you know, been about six, seven years now. Um, I had an abortion when I was 19. But when I had my abortion, I didn't really know anyone who'd had an abortion. Um, I had a cousin who you know, she had told me that she had had one, but we never really talked about it that deeply. Um, and I knew that the rapper Little Kim had had an abortion. And that was kind of the extent of people I'd seen who, you know, had had them and talked about them. Um, and so for me as a biracial black woman, I really wanted to, you know, see myself represented. Um, and I wanted to see people of color represented in a you know, sharing their abortion stories and just talking about it in the news media, but also in pop culture. And 
um, something I always say is that everyone loves someone who's had an abortion. And so the more stories that we have out there, the more diversity of stories that we have out there, it reminds people that it's actually really common and it's quite normal. Um, when I had my abortion, I remembered feeling so isolated and alone. And even though my family was a very, very pro-choice family, and I knew that we you know, stood with Planned Parenthood, I knew that we were pro-choice. I didn't really feel like I could go to my parents to tell them that I was pregnant because I was afraid they would be upset with me because I got pregnant by the boyfriend that they couldn't stand. Um, and I worried that they would judge me. And I do wish that I'd had someone in the clinic with me. Um, I do wish that I had had someone to talk to afterwards that had also had an abortion. And so part of the reason why I do all of this work um, and sharing stories is so that folks know that they're not alone and no one feels the way that I did when I was in the clinic. What I saw when I started sharing my stories was it was a lot of like white women and older white women talking about abortion and often talking about it in a very abstract or only policy way and not actually saying, well, I had an abortion, so I know what it's like. Um, and so I want to change that. I want us to be having the conversation about people who have abortions, putting them at the center and putting those of us who are most marginalized, those of us who have multiple identities at the center of every single conversation. One thing you bring up here is how abortion is such a personal decision that ties into all the different complicated parts of your identity. But when we talk about abortion and politics, it can often become abstract and binary, like it's just a blue issue or a red issue. And I think that's something that the movement to tell more personal stories about abortion is changing in a positive way. It's bringing more nuance to these discussions. You know, like just making abortion legal isn't enough when it's hard to get the money to get an abortion, when you have to drive hundreds of miles to get an abortion, when there's social stigma around abortion. Well, I think it's always easy to take people's rights away if you demonize them, dehumanize them, um, and take them out of the conversation. So it's easy to pass restrictions if on, on abortion or anything if you refuse to acknowledge that the person being impacted is a human being and is even part of the conversation. So, you know, you shut people who've had abortions out of the conversation. You say that this is about regulations and that's it. Um, it makes it easier because people are like, oh, we're just arguing about mundane regulations and forgetting that it's actually impacting someone's life. Um, I think that this happens in a whole host of issues. When we're talking about terrorism, we forget that there are Muslim families who are impacted by our rhetoric and the policies that are being passed every single day. Same thing with trans folks. You know, if we're just talking about folks in an abstract and not recognizing that this is um, a human being who is standing right next to us and they will be impacted in this way. You know, it's easier to pass these just, oh, these are just bathroom rules. Like it's not that big a deal. Um, and forgetting that, you know, someone is going to be harassed based on what law you're passing. So I think there's always this like fight to try to keep us out of the room and to um, keep the conversation out of our personal experiences because when we insert ourselves and when we insert our stories, the politicians and people voting on these issues are forced to face our humanity. And 
here's the thing. Roe v. Wade is le- keeps abortion legal, right? And yet there are countless states who have one clinic or a handful of clinics. And so we have to really be vigilant that Roe v. Wade may be legal across the nation, but if there is no clinic for you to go to, or if you can't get a day off of work because you have no sick days or because you work an hourly job and so for you to take time off to go get healthcare um, means you're unpaid or you don't have anyone to watch your kids while you go get an abortion or whatever it is, that's not actually meaning that it's accessible. So how do you feel like sharing these stories has changed the nature of political discussions this election? Um, the fact that a conversation around repealing the Hyde Amendment is center stage in the election right now is a huge shift. Um, for those who don't know, the Hyde Amendment is a annual budget rider um, that is in its 40th year as of last month, um, and it bans federal funds from uh, being used to pay for abortions. So anyone who is enrolled in Medicaid, anyone who is in the military, um, uh, uses the Indian Health Services Insurance Plan, um, anyone who is incarcerated, folks who are being held in the immigration detention centers, uh, federal employees, and in um, the the vast majority of states, um, state employees, they cannot use their health insurance to pay for an abortion. So this actually leads a quarter of people on Medicaid um, to carry a pregnancy to term that they would not have otherwise. And that's actually just quite unjust because why is it that we are saying that, oh, because you get your health insurance through the federal government, you are not entitled to your constitutional right. You are not entitled to this type of health care. Um, and that leaves people struggling to try to figure out how to pay for these for an abortion, um, which starts at $500. So while the Hyde Amendment has remained intact for 40 years, in the past decade or so, Republicans have realized that they're not going to be able to dismantle abortion rights at the federal level by repealing Roe v. Wade. So instead, they've shifted tactics and they're chipping away at abortion rights at a state by state level, getting legislatures in almost every state to pass laws that make it harder to get an abortion and harder for doctors to provide them. There have been fights over this all the way from Texas to Wisconsin. And these laws are pushed by Republicans with the language of, quote, protecting women's health and safety. Like, we need to make it harder to get an abortion as a safety issue. Can you talk about that rhetoric and the paternalism that's apparent there? <laughs> Um, well, first off, it's utter bullshit, um, because if they actually cared about health and safety, they would actually read all of the research that shows that abortion is one of the safest medical procedures ever. Um, it's actually like 14 times safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. Um, and that was actually something that came out in the whole women's health, the Hellerstedt case was that abortion is extremely safe. And by Texas shutting down abortion clinics through HB2, they were actually making abortion quite unsafe because, you know, they were denying people access. Um, Additionally, the folks who seem to care so much about, you know, people carrying these pregnancies to term and women's health and all of those things, 
they say nothing on the issues around um, maternal mortality. Um, and that is something that impacts black women at a extremely higher rate than it does like white women, right? But they're not actually doing anything about that. They're not doing anything about any other like healthcare issue. They're not trying to make sure that people have access to insurance. They're not trying to make sure that Medicaid is expanded. It is literally about trying to deny access to autonomy through this one healthcare procedure. Um, and their language has very much gone to like, oh, we're pro-women, we're pro-life, we're compassionate. Um, one that they use a lot is uh, women deserve better than abortion. And they're using it to try to kind of say that, you know, those of us who choose abortion are being preyed upon by, you know, evil abortion providers when that's not true. Abortion providers are extremely compassionate. Mine held my hand during my procedure. But what they're trying to do is just like say that, you know, women are dumb. They don't know what they're really getting into. Um, they're being duped. They're, you know, being taken advantage of by these money hungry abortion providers. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and it is extremely patronizing because they refuse to admit that, yes, those of us who have abortions, we choose it freely. Um, we have agency and we know what's best for our lives. Um, for me as a, a black woman who's had an abortion, like I hear a lot of people, you know, saying, well, Margaret Sanger, or it's black genocide. And, you know, you're not you're trying to save your people and all of this stuff. And that I'm a race trader for supporting access to abortion. It is true that black women are five times more likely to have an abortion. And that is because we're lacking access to consistent um, access to healthcare and birth control. Um, and they're not doing anything to try to fix that, to alleviate that as an issue. Um, they're also not doing anything to support the black mothers whose children are being shot in the street by police officers or community vigilantes. Um, so, you know, when they talk about, they want to support, you know, women and black motherhood and all of these things, they're not there where we're saying we actually do need them. They're not understanding what reproductive justice is, which is ensuring that everyone has the rights and ability and resources to decide if, when, and how to become a parent and to be able to parent their children with dignity and respect. Abortion came up in the last presidential debate. The language that Donald Trump used to describe Abortion in that debate was really grotesque and graphic and misleading. I feel bad even repeating it here, but it's important to talk about, and it was on national TV. So here's a quote from Donald Trump from the last presidential debate. He said, If you're going with what Hillary is saying, in the ninth month, you can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb of the mother just prior to the birth of the baby. Can you talk about that language? Like, where did he get the idea to say that abortion is, quote, ripping a baby out of the womb? And what impact does that language have? Well, first, to uh, quote Shonda Rhimes and correct Donald Trump, uh, what he was describing was a C-section, uh, and it's quite a normal procedure uh, when it comes to pregnancy. But, you know, this language um, comes straight out of the anti-choice movement. Um, you know, last year, 
We saw the Planned Parenthood videos um, get released that were highly edited. Um, Forensic analysts have looked at them and saw that they were, you know, said that they were discredited. They were clearly um, misleading. Um, But a lot of the language that the anti-choice activists used to talk about those videos was this like ripping fetuses apart and all that stuff. And the point of it is to kind of shame people who are seeking abortions and get people to think that it's, it's gory and it's somehow a awful, terrible medical procedure when in reality, it's actually about five minutes long. Um, I know because I was there, I had one. Um, what he was saying was so ridiculously inaccurate that I was sitting there like, he literally has no idea how an abortion is performed. Um, and this isn't new, right? Because last year during the Republican primary debates, we saw Carly Fiorina do the same thing. It's not new what he's doing. And a lot of politicians have done this. Again, it's all part of this, like, trying to shame and stigmatize and, like, add to this, like, gore factor. It's weird how abortion is treated as often some kind of purely political abstract issue. Because it's not. It's a basic part of healthcare for the millions of people with uteruses who get abortions every year. And people have been performing abortions for all of human history. Like literally, one of the oldest pieces of writing we have in the world, the Code of Hammurabi, written nearly 4,000 years ago, mentions abortion. And here we are, millennia later, and for some reason, it's still hard to talk about abortion. It often feels hard to find the right words to talk about abortion. Are you pro-choice or anti-abortion or pro-women? Because it's such a personal thing. This isn't about being a Democrat or a Republican. It's about our bodies. And everyone has their own relationship to their body. So all the language we have seems to fall short of describing this 4,000-year-old very normal medical procedure. What's important, though, is hearing those personal stories and listening to them, whether they're being told on a TV show or on a national political stage. For far too long, those stories have been silenced. 